trigger on. Welcome, D-Roll. Shit. Welcome, <laughs> 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 D-Roll. Shit. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, D-Roll, to Duckface Diaries. We are a World Trigger Retreat Podcast aiming to discuss the World Trigger manga volume by volume. I'm Wensleydale Cheddar. And I'm Hoven with an H, and this month we'll be tackling Volume 11, which covers chapters 89 to 97, and the rest of Episode 40 to Episode 44. Shit! Shit! <laughs> uh, and uh, keeping up our streak, uh, we have yet another guest on the show, and this one's a doozy. You know, I was really surprised when I saw this, but... I can't believe we got Arafune from Arafune Squad to discuss his own fight volume. <laughs> How are you doing, Arafune? I am doing fantastic! Wait, h- hold on. I was wondering why Arafune sa- sounds like a World Trigger Bridge Arashiyama. <laughs> Viewers who are, are listeners who are watching on YouTube will see that the duck face of our guest bears a striking resemblance, but it is not Arafune. Would you like to introduce yourself? <laughs> I might as well. I've already mixed, messed up by confusing Arafune and Arashiyama, even though this volume you've heavily featured Arafune. Hello, I am Arafune. I also look like Jin. <laughs> I am a longtime friend of these two, Grail9, and occasional co-host in Stuff They Do. Mostly out of pity. Wow. We love to have you on. This show is not about uh, self-loathing. Well, it mostly is, but uh, but still. Grail Nye is also the voice of Arashiyama in the World Trigger Bridge, uh, an abridged series that we did a while ago, back when the Ogdar Forum was created, on, on which uh, we kind of all met. Yeah, he's a frequent manga mosaic <laughs> guest host, a member of Team o- Odar. Um, O-D-A-R, Odar. I, f- I forget how we call it. Uh, it, it keeps changing. I've always said O-D-A-R. Uh, and also a frequent guest on Hoven's Hideaway. That's right. Grail, how are you doing? Pretty good. Just not a fan of my job, but hey, about three weeks and I'll be out of there. Also, weather's been looking a lot nicer recently. We've been hitting over 15 this week. Just sucks that when I leave to work, it's still only at like 0 to 2, so... I gotta wear heavy clothing when I go to work, and then it'll be really damn hot when I get off work. Yeah, that's true. You you are an early bird. I, I only start at ten my time, and I'm very glad for this job because like it allows me to socially distance. So so, so I've got a new job. I'm a telephone interpreter now. I, I can do it from home, and uh, it, it makes use of my language skills. Yeah, but finding a full time job it, it does take away your time for, from you know podcast making and and stuff. Who'd have guessed? I was going to have a special thing for for like the ending of Attack on Titan. I, I was supposed to even do a video essay, but I'm chipping away at it. It's going to arrive eventually. It's a pretty evergreen property. Uh, like they've got another see another chunk of the anime left to do. So yeah, no no reason to rush. Final season part two. And I don't think the even though I haven't followed it and heard some people. Do- don't, really don't like the ending. I don't think it's as bad as something like Game of Thrones that just kills any enthusiasm for the series at all. Well, you can hear my thoughts on the ending on a plug that I'm going to put later in the podcast. <laughs> but uh, uh, I guess in the terms of in terms of World Trigger stuff, we do have a few things uh, that have happened because we took a month off, obviously, and in that time, season two of the anime has come to a close, uh, and it really kept up the quality uh, the whole way through. I think. Um, I was really impressed with how the uh, the various B-rank matches have been going so far, uh, and looking forward to Season 3, which is, will be coming out in October. 
season two was brilliant i um i was especially amazed like the visual quality is is obviously um is obviously very good and uh, so, so uh, this goes without saying but, but like the way how they improved the pacing especially the comedic pacing um I, i'm really glad that they stepped up the, the game for uh for the introduction of og and Ikoma. Mm, yeah on today's agenda, we're going to do a recap for Volume 11, which was created by Dusky Ashihara, translated by Lillian Olsen, touch-up and lettering done by Ace Chrisman, design done by Sam Eldsway, and it was edited by Hope Donovan and Marlene Furs. Then we're going to move on to some general thoughts, then Ashihara comments corner, spoiler corner, then we're going to do our small interview with Grail, then Q&A segment. Anyway, shall we get into the summary of the volume that we're tackling? Yes, please. Let's get to the summary. Rank Wars, Shokugeki no Yuma. When we last left off, Osama's team was in the middle of the match with Sua and Arafune's squad. We flash back to Compose Beefcake, asking Yuma to come on patrol with him as they walk on Osamu deep in his research on the two squads. When he persists in browsing through data and neglecting his sleep, Yuma and Chika smile at each other, saying they have to win now. Fucking hell, Ashihara, please, please take care of yourself. So coming back to the present, uh, Tamakoma split up to earn some points, while Suwa um, occupies Arafune Squad's attention. He uses what the sniper veteran Azuma calls a fishing maneuver, when he pretends to leave himself open, but then counters the shot with a concentrated shield to find the sniper's location. Tsutsumi, from Sewa Squad, immediately makes use of uh, makes use of this to attack the the sniper Hanzaki from Arafune Ara Squad. Uh, Yuma tries to get the sniper first, but the Sewa Squad gunner kills Seals, earning the first point. Yuma doesn't wait a second and moves in to attack the gunner. Even though Tsutsumi has studied his moves, his constantly shut eyes prevent him from seeing the grasshopper that bounces Yuma back to the ground, just as he was about to get shot. Yuma added this trigger a day before, a trick that Midorikawa taught him. With the snipers becoming targeted, Arafone has no option but to reveal his specialty. The fact that he used to be an attacker in the past using Kogetsu. So he stops Yuma in his tracks while Suwa hones in on them both. As the sword fight between the full cap captain and the shrimp continues, the former uses some maneuvers uh, using the bagworm cloak just stabbing Yuma through it to, uh, to disguise the attack, or hiding his dismembered leg. Hokari from Arafune Squad shoots at Yuma, damaging his scorpion, and then discovers Sasamori uh, from Sewer Squad has come after him. The commentary team notes Osama's role is now to psychologically affect Sewer Squad. Just by staying behind the snipers within range, just within range, they have to divert their attention away from the current battles. So uh, Arashiyama is like, good job, Mikimo. Hitora's like, it could be a coincidence. Hikari from Arafone Squad decides he has no chance in close combat with Sasamori from Sewer Squad. So he decides to help his captain instead, blowing Yuma's arm off with his last shot. Yuma has to finish it quickly. He summons a grasshopper, but it's a feint. He propels himself against the wall and cuts Arafone's leg clean off. But then... A wild cube appears! So Sue attacks Yuma but can't get a clean shot because of his leg. But then Hisato grub grabs Yuma in a hold under Chameleon, surprising him. Now Sue can get a clean shot. But this is when Usami gives Chika the order to shoot. The cannon blast destroys the battlefield. 
So Yuma finishes off Hisato in the chaos, but Arafune snipes Chika. While close to bailing out himself, Suwa sees Yuma's bouncy acrobatics coming. But it doesn't matter. The shrimp was only serving as bait. Just as Yuma shields himself from Suwa's barrage, Osamu pops up to finish. Osamu pops up to finish Suwa with. Osamu pops up to fin. Fuck. <laughs> Osamu pops up to finish Suwa off with us. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Finish him off with us. <laughs> Osamu pops off to finish Sua off with Asteroid. Tamakoma 2 wins. As the teams decompress, Usami doting on Chika and Yuma thanking her for saving him, the commentary team gives the final thoughts on the match, praising Osama's Yuma-centric strategy, Kodera adding to it that they forced Sua and Arafune to play by the rules, breaking Sua's usual for formation, and making uh, Arafune the, the target via choice of battleground. Tamakoma is now B-rank provisional number 8, and the next match is with Nasa Squad and Suzunari 1. Osama notes that they have the same attacker-shooter-sniper formation as Tamakoma, with the shooters serving as captains. Most importantly of all, though, Suzunari 1 has an outstanding ace they have to look out for. Ko Murakami, the number 4-ranked attacker. Over to you, Grail. As everyone starts pouring out of the auditorium, we see Kitora retire to talk to Futaba, who does not seem to care much for her, which breaks her little heart. <laughs> Seems like she wants respect from her elders, competition she can beat from her age, and admiration from those younger. Though someone not caring, yeah, that just feels wrong. Meanwhile, Yunea and Midori Kawa run into to Yuma and Osamu as they're leaving. As Shiori and Chika also enter the scene, we see that Kodera seems to have a bit of a crush on her. And finally, Ute and Kikuchihara right into the scene, and Kikuchihara is being an ass, as usual, and thankfully punished for it by Shiori's headlock. <laughs> and then Kikuchihara is an ass again by saying she gained weight, and gets punished again. And for some reason, Kodera wants to be in that position. I'm not judging! Anyway, at this point, Kikuchihara makes an ass, but also a good point, that Yuma is only member in the squad who can handle one-on-one -on -one combat. If he ever goes down for any reason, the remaining two are dead in the water in their fights. Meanwhile, we also learn that despite using Fujin in an earlier fight, Miwa has not been made an S rank. We also learn that despite using Fujin during the invasion, Miwa was not made an S rank agent. Instead, Fujin will be passed around suitable candidates when the situation calls for it, as Miwa thinks it's too limited in its use and should not be just used because we all think it's too limited, as it's powerful, but too specialized and not adaptable. Therefore, they will be training a whole bunch of people who could use it and pass it around each other. Back at Tamakoma, Reiji is talking about how he thinks the last match showed Yuma and Osamu are being a bit overprotective over Chika, since she needs to learn how to fight on her or into her good neighbor worlds. Shiori counters this by saying that Chika always volunteers for risky roles, and due to her trying getting people hurt and passed, she doesn't seem to care about her own life. This, they're doing this to make her consider her own safety and not just taking on all the danger. After hearing this, Reiji decides to have Chika take a break from training so the two can go out to eat. Once again at border, the matches between Midori Kawa and Yuma have finished with a total of 30 matches, 9 going to Midori Kawa, and Yuma taking 21. Putting a score around 7 to, seven to 3. A little better than first matches they had, but Yuma is still clearly in the lead. 
Soon enough, we meet this this fourth-ranked attacker, Komar Kami, someone we briefly also met during the invasion. And this is where we also learn another thing. Murakami is the reason Arafune quit being an attacker. And this seems to be confirmed because the two seem to at least have some relation between each other, as they're talking like they're very familiar. Murakami has actually come here to size up his upcoming opponents, especially knowing Yuma beat Arafune in a straight fight. While Murakami wants to have a match with Midorikawa for practice, Midorikawa seems to refuse, thinking he'll lose more points. Even Yuma notes that Midorikawa thinks Murakami would win this match, while we know that Midorikawa is an A-ranker. Specifically, he seems to want to fight a Grasshopper user, as Yonea's offer is turned down for that reason. So, what does happens? Yuma offers to be the opponent. Though both Yonea and Arafune warn him not to do that for an unexplained reason. Though this only helps to make him more curious, so he still wants to go through with the match. While Murakami does accept, he places two conditions on the match. First, a match of 10 rounds. Second, curiously enough, he wants to have a 15 minute break between the first 5 and last 5 rounds. Yuma, ac Yuma accepts and the match is on. At first, Yuma seems to be winning 4-1 to one and having a good luck here. For now we cut away to the meal between Chika and Reiji. Reiji tells Chika about his father. He was a fireman, a search and rescue worker, and possibly a rescue worker. They use all three terms, so I'm not sure what exactly he did. Either way, Reiji looked up to him quite a bit and has been maintaining him physically as his father would. However, we also learned he died nine years ago protecting a small child and with a wound on his chest. While Chika theorizes this could have been a neighbor attack, Reiji can neither confirm nor deny it, as at the time neighbors weren't widely known and the kid was too young to serve as any reliable witness. He does think there is a good chance, but we never get any confirmation on the matter. Chika comments on how he must have been a great rescue worker, though Reiji counters this, because he's a dick. Yeah. My father died, so he was not a great rescue worker. Though, more specifically, he explains that his father always said, if you can't come back alive, you failed as a rescue worker. After all, if you survive, you can rescue more people. Specifically, his father could have rescued people during the first invasion. A point he also presses on Chika, going back to the earlier conversation with Shiori and him. Returning to Yuma and Murakami's fight, we see Yuma has taken 4 out of 5 rounds in the first set. Osamu's already thinking he can make a strategy around Yuma, but Yonea guesses he's pretty much thinking this, and says this is where Murakami gets scary. After a brief scene where Jin sexually harasses Kumagai of Nasu's squad and gets rightfully punched in the face for it, we turn to the fight and see that in the last 5 rounds, Yuma didn't win a single one. Reason is soon explained, as Murakami's side effect. He can process and internalize information at an insane pace while he sleeps, meaning he learned all of Yuma's moves by taking a short nap during their break and using them to counter everything during the last five rounds. In the next chapter, we're back at Tamakoma HQ, where Yuma lets Konami know Murakami beat him 6-4, Shiori even noting that she planned on warning them about Murakami's side effect. While Konami berates Yuma for being reckless, he thinks it's better he learned this ahead of time for a plan around it. And this is where Osamu is forced to remember Kikuchihara's warning, as now they face an opponent Yuma can't beat one-on-one, -on -one, meaning he can't have any strategy relying on Yuma alone. He's still determined to make this work, planning to gather data on the other teams. 
here we also learned why Arak would have quit being an attacker. There was a room around the snipers. Arafune joined earlier than Murakami, despite them both being the same age, so Arafune was the one to teach Murakami about using the sword. However, with this side effect, it only took Murakami six months to surpass Arafune. Osamu is skeptical, though, if this is the only reason. However, it's not just Suzunari one they need to worry about, as pointed to him, but also Nasu squad, and they are the ones who choose the stage this time. Going to Suzunari branch, we have a meeting between Tatsuya, Yuka, and Murakami, who talk about the matches last night. They think that, that Yuma is still a considerable foe, seeing as he scored 6-4, but since Murakami won, their operator Yuka thinks that, he won't, that Murakami won't lose again. Though Murakami isn't quite so convinced, because not only will Yuma also learn, it's possible that Yuma wasn't giving his all during the solo fights. He was just trying to feel Murakami out. So while Murakami thinks that he will take Yuma on one-on-one, -on -one, it would be better for them to coordinate with as a team with their last member, Taichi Betsuyaku, who is a dupus. That's the plain way to put it. That as soon as he arrives, he's being a, he's being loud. He messes up as the water is out for his cup noodles, and when he goes to get more, he trips and drops all the flavor bits out of it. Seems like their operator hates him, and so do I. I love him. I love him and his wonderful sniper hat. Uh, this is a feud, Nick. <laughs> anyway, from there we jump over to the Nasu Squad meeting, which seems to be doing social distancing, as they are only talking through computer, aside to, to Hugo Kuma guy and their, their attacker, Rei Nasu. As first they comment about the, about the fact that Murakami was able to win against Yuma, even though there isn't much more info on Yuma. But the fact that he went 4-1 to one in the first 5 rounds means it's trouble. Plus, he was able to beat both Arafune and Shun, so both think that he is Tanakoma 2's ace. So Nasa says... <coughs> the other two... <coughs> Don't move as smoothly... <coughs> They also theorize that Yuma is the one to put to pull together team strategies, as he seems to be above the rest of his squad. They also point out that while Amachika has an insane try on capacity, she has not gotten a single point during any of the matches. So Kuga will be their main threat for points. However, they do seem to think that Suzunari 1 is their true opponent. They've lost the last six times in the rank war against Suzunari 1. Though they do seem to have a strategy this time, as they hear that on February 1st, Suwasquan was able to beat Suzunari squad with two survivors. Seemingly their strategy was to hold back Murakami with hail of bullets so that they would never be in melee range where Murakami is the strongest. That's why they decided to try and fight within Nasu's range, seeing as she is the strongest of all the shooters in this match. While they lack Suwasquan's firepower, they they still have the chance of being defensive, and thinking that they might just need to run out the clock. Not to mention they have the advantage of picking the stage. After that, it'll all depend on their sniper, Akane, who so far has not been part of the meeting. Finally, we got back to Tamakoma branch, where we learned that Yuma's body apparently doesn't need to sleep. At least I think this is where we learned this fact. Rindo comes over to the roof, offering him some hot drink. And seems to be... To be saying that Osamu is worried about Yuma for having the big loss, thinking he might be feeling down. 
though Yuma just thinks Osamu is such a worry ward, and Yuma's not at all depressed, thinking everyone trains just as hard. And you can't win them all anyway. In fact, he seems to be interested in being able to fight so many strong opponents. He comments on how the rank wars are very well thought out, as they allow people to train and fight each other without the risk of death. This is where Rindo says that he and Mr. Kanuda made the rank wars, though the one to come up with the system was Yuma's father. Back when there were only 10 people in the border, he was always apparently happily talking about the future. Yuma seems to be a little melancholic hearing about his father, so Rindo just tells him, Have fun, Yuma. There are still a lot of good times to be had. And so comes the day of the battle, the third match of B-Rank Wars. We're treated to a flashback with Murakami crying oh-so-peculiar-looking tears over Arafune quitting being an attacker. He laments his side effect, causing every person to teach him an activity or skill to lose interest in that activity. However, after a consultation from Karuma, it becomes clear that this isn't why Arafune left. Rather that he always wanted to move on to another skill to hone himself as a perfect all-rounder mentor figure, much like composed beefcake. Reflecting on Arafume's pep talk following this, Ko is ready for battle. Tamakomatu's strategy meeting uh, it has the team theorizing which stage Nasu will use, deciding on a more reactive strategy due to the knowledge that they'll probably be put at a disadvantage either way. Over in Nasu Squad's meeting, we learn that they've decided on the on the riverbank stage, with an aim to split up the teams with the river destroying the destroying the bridge after they meet up. We also meet their sniper, Akane Hiura. Who has a far better sniper hat. Fight me! Uh, the, we, we find out the commentators for the match, Kaho Mikami from Kazuma Squad, and of course, Jin and Tachikawa, the two big rivals of Border. Uh, while correctly guessing Nasu's strategy, Tachikawa points out that the river is still crossable without the bridge due to only being waist depth, though it will require a bit of cover in order to do so. Uh, Jin remains a coy motherfucker about everything. Uh, these squads are sent in and greeted with Rainstorm Weather, an option Nasu picked specifically to make fording the river even more of a challenge. The teams start closing in on each other, with the ag with agents stuck on the west bank trying to move across to Rendezvous on the east side, though Nasu are clearly, clearly adapt to it much more since they don't have the surprise of the weather. Uh, Karuma commands his squad to watch out for Yuma crossing the river with Grasshopper. It's revealed in a flashback that Nasu's squad have resolved to play for the top spot due to their limited time as a unit, are having her move soon for high school. Uh, which is an interesting contrast to Tamakoma. This team competes more for pure personal achievement rather than for the, to get onto the away mission. Uh, back in the present, uh, it's actually Chika who destroys the bridge uh, before Nasu's squad are able to regroup, which, on the other hand, does leave Yuma on the same side as Murakami, but it also means that yeah, they, Nasu cannot maximize uh, her strategy. When informed of this, Nasu simply responds, <coughs> Then... <coughs> then... <coughs> then I'll just... <coughs> wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't shoot, don't shoot. <coughs> then I'll just have to defeat everyone on, on this side by myself. <coughs> Why would she be coughing in a tryout body? I don't make the rules. She just does it out of habit at this point. Um, <laughs> so Kumagai runs into Murakami on the wreck of the bridge, and they start fighting with Murakami pushing Kumagai further and further towards the river. Uh, Kuga then sneaks up and destroys the bridge beneath him, but he uses the thruster that he's 
sort of using as a secondary weapon to get to shore. Akane is taking a sniper position on this particular part encounter. Uh, meanwhile, Osamu has run into Nasu, and she quickly overwhelms him, forcing him into the alleyways, and is then able to flush out Taichi after he fails to snipe her. Uh, he is saved by uh, Kuruma, however. We learn that Tachikawa is... We learn from Tachikawa that, along with Izumi, Nasu is one of the only agents that can program their Viper's trajectories in real time, uh, most others opting for several pre-programmed, pre-programmed patterns that they can fall back on, essentially making it a more, um, a more, a more flexible asteroid, basically. Uh, with the match at a stalemate, Osamu puts Chika in more of a reconnaissance role to seek out Suzunari-1, and entrust Yuma to take down Murakami. He himself assumes the role of a points of a points getter. We cut back to the base with Tamakoma Branch watching the match. With them is none other than Hughes. His one comment on the battle: the weak will lose. That's all there is to it. And that's where we leave off. General thoughts. General thoughts. Corporal thoughts. Sergeant thoughts. Colonel thoughts. Anyway! Right, so... This volume was very interesting for me. I kind of expected to go, Ah, um, yeah, these first few matches are a lot of setup and uh, basic tactics, and I may find that a bit boring, but what I overlooked about Ashihara's writing is that it's, it's really the downtime scenes between the matches where the characterization really shines, so I really uh, enjoyed reading this. I loved, for example, the closer examination of Chika. The fact that we get to see how little she values her own life and how her mentors want to dote over her and how that continues later on uh, in the series, I really found that heartwarming and found that interesting for her. It's uh, one of the reasons she becomes one of my favourite characters. Hmm, it's, it's also seeing that Shiori, as an operator, has a very different insight to Reiji uh, regarding Chika than he does as her mentor, and uh, seeing that he can learn from that perspective how he mentors her. Definitely. The the, the scene with Composer Beefcake and, and Chika at, uh, at, at the bar was was really strong and also really Ashihara. It's all it's all about that that finding a balance between being able to take risks and go in headstrong and also having stronger self-preservation instincts, with a balance of these two things being the healthiest outcome. Definitely. So, uh, Grill, how did you enjoy this? I quite enjoyed this. Like, the first few matches that were the tail end of Suwa slash Arafune match weren't that exciting because that's honestly one of the weaker matches. But then we start building up the next one and we get something that we haven't seen before in these, well, two rank 4 matches. Having an opponent who is superior to Yuma and building up how that can be a real challenge for the Tamakoma squad. Because as we see, Murakami right now in a one-on-one -on -one match will usually beat Yuma. They can't just think that, okay, we got this super strong attacker, he'll take care of all the big threats. They will actually need to find a way where Yuma can win this. Not to mention Nasu, who currently is locked in with Osamu, who is shown to be worse than either shooter in the other two squads. So how will he deal with this? This first time you really think that Tamakoma 2 might lose, because so far they've always been punching downwards, I feel. Even when Arafune showed his sword, it felt like Yuma was constantly in control of that fight. Mm, yeah, the escalation of challenge, it's its continuing that in its usual incremental way, uh, with obviously the stronger ace being the big ramp up, but then you also have 
different team setups to the first match, which presents a new challenge. How do they, how are they going to go up against opponents that have a similar party composition to them? Uh, they don't have the ability to pick the setting anymore. But the other squads also do rank below them, uh, So and Murakami's teammates aren't nearly as overpowered as he is. Uh, but, on the other hand, they don't have as much of the element of surprise anymore, and that is something that continues to diminish with each match. Uh, and you know, I do like the detail that Sua's squad were able to beat Suzunari 1, so it really does emphasize how much, like, just sheer circumstance and a a good play by any given team can balance things. Took the words right along my mouth, because I was just about to comment on that, as well as showing that, just like Kikuchihara said with Yuma, you can't rely on your ace alone, because, like they said, they were mostly suppressing just Murakami, not so much the other two members of that team. But just by taking out their biggest threat, Sua Squad was able to win. Yeah, I, I quite agree. Like, I would say that I really liked the resolution of the Arafune and the uh, Sua Squad match. Uh, I didn't expect to enjoy the strategy in that as much as it did. For example, uh, like Arafune's sword play with, with the Bagworm, it, it really fits like his role as a sniper and as an attacker. Uh, I thought it was really clever. Also, uh, like using Comedian to trap an ace in a hold without attacking. This was a really clever tactic from Sasamori, uh, who we now know that, that he knows his limitation, and, uh, and that, that's kind of what defines him ever since the invasion arc. Yeah, I will say that hmm. even though I said that this is one of the weaker matches, I would assume that's just because I've seen the future matches and they're all just better. Like, this isn't bad, it's just really on a curve, it's in the lower end. I, I do find it really interesting that we get more characterization for Arafune leaning into leading into the next fight rather than before his. It's a very different way to um it's definitely a, a not not the conventional way you'd set up these sort of matches. Yes, so I really like how the mystery element in Arafune's characterization is set up in this volume. Uh, like up till now he was pretty boring, uh but uh, throwing in this curveball of ooh, he still gets good results with a sword. Why did he quit being an attacker a few years ago? It's a very organic way of making your background feel alive. It's nothing big, but th there's something going on between these secondary characters. Then we come to Ko's opening scene, which was also good build-up. Uh, so this boyo is getting really awkward and nervous, and, and yet his presence makes people really gather around him in the in the solo rank wars room. And and then we remember that oh yeah he's uh, at least uh, we remember if we read this three times already but because there's so many characters in World Trigger um, we remember that this boy has um, held off three rabbits by himself during the invasion well I guess you could say that Wensleydale <laughs> forgot. <laughs> well, I think one thing I was going to touch on about that scene is that uh, I really like that this arc, it reintroduces characters that were featured in the invasion in, in very natural ways. I think Ashihara shows a good understanding here that perhaps not all readers would remember who the various bit players were. Murakami's introduction here reads like it could be his first appearance uh, if you hadn't remembered him. Yeah. Though, I will still mention that character-wise, Murakami feels kind of flat. He doesn't really have seem to have a lot of personality. Like, even the scene where he's crying, like you said, he has a really <laughs> weird cry where tears come down, but his facial expression doesn't seem to change at all. I mean, it's sort of it's sort of a Tachikawa quality, which is weird because the the previous scene kind of con like the previous scene we saw him with in the in the invasion arc very much contrasted him as like the less quirky of them. But this is still like him being a bit more childish than you'd expect. <laughs> um 
so it's interesting. <laughs> Uh, there was a lot more characterization, like built up visually, maybe at the start, if if that makes sense. How he gets nervous when he uh, when he enters the sort of Rancor's room. How uh, he really doesn't want to attract attention. It makes sense that he kind of expects antagonism in that regard, but because he gets so much better than everyone else, as we as we kind of see his complex in in the flashback. So I'm mixed on the flashback itself. I really like that we don't need to have the protagonists involved to resolve a side character's arc. It, it really fits the world that Ashihara is trying to build, but the individual cogs move on their own. But then again, it's, um, it's resolved in such a simple way. Uh, this was all just a misunderstanding. I, in fact, planned to do it from the start. Although, maybe you think that Arafune intended to, to actually become an all-rounder from the start. Maybe it was just Kuruma pretending to be Arafune with his superior acting skills! Come on! Though, <laughs> <laughs> so, I do kind of like what this flashback does to Arafune. This, this is building him up as a no-nonsense guy, where he just goes to sell co- you're getting pretty big-headed, guy, so fuck off and start fighting. You're not that great yet, even if you beat me, and I didn't do it just because of you. By the way, uh, we mentioned Wensleydale forgot. I had a moment where I realized I made a bit of a mistake, because I was going to call it a Hovin forgot that the bonus page, I've, I said, was only in the anime, is actually a volume extra that is uh, included in the in the jump vault. Oh, there we go. Uh, featuring Takatomi. Uh, but... Uh, it's maybe not so much like that, so much as it's a uh, Hoven didn't realize. <laughs> uh, since I read these chapters in the jump issues, and when I revisited it recently, it would have been in the anime. So I just never happened upon these. Um, still, I, I claimed that it had never been localized in front of a member of the localization team. So that's embarrassing. <laughs> uh, I, I like that Tachikawa enters Takatomi's recording den with Hark. That's it. <laughs> Does he just enter, like, all sorts of places like that? That's Duckley's Diaries canon now. Okay. Coming back to the flashback a little bit, uh, what I also wanted to say is that I really like that sleep is the framing device for it. We kind of see how Ko's whole thing is, uh, like, Ko's whole side effect, and it's, it's a really nice touch that, uh, that we kind of do have it as that. Uh, this is just reiterating on a point made in the previous volume, but Arafune having the weakest show, Amfune squad having the weakest show of the match, despite having the strongest ace, does reinsert, reassert the importance of how Tamakuma 2, Tamakuma? <laughs> Tamakuma 2 commanded the battle uh, and painted the target on them. And obviously Tamakuma's growing notoriety could give this tactic a very short shelf life. This is like a random phonetic observation. I, I like how Sua calls Hokari Pokari, and as we'll see later in the in the volume extras, it, it's just Ashihara kind of adopted it in in the bonus profiles. Her is sometimes in free variation with the P sound in, in Japanese, either free variation or allophonic distribution. I don't remember. I'm mostly into random observations at this point. Um, I guess one more thing is I, I think Reiji's, the Reiji's philosophy that his dad imparted onto him could kind of be read as the opposite of Osamu's path. Because Osamu mostly has his wits and needs to improve his, like, finesse and, like, fighting ability. Whereas Composed Beefcake's approach has always been, you know, train your body first and then let the wits take over. Uh, he's come at the path from a very different point of view. I think more point there was just that 
you need to survive, because that way you can come back again and help more people. Sacrificial play will just mean that you help people now and never again in the future. Yeah. Well, one thing one thing I put on, uh, I put on my notes, is it's... which JoJo's light motif fits the scene where Suwa reveals the face shield the best? <laughs> uh, uh, so I feel like, because um, basically in, in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, from basically part three onwards, every single main character has like a theme song that kicks in whenever there's like a turnabout moment in a match. Uh, just when all things look like the most dire, they pull out an ace in, an ace in their hand. Um, I, I'm leaning towards the Stardust Crusaders. Well, speaking of which, speaking of JoJo's, uh, we now know that Yosuke and Yotaro together make up Yo-Yo's Bizarre Adventures, of course. Then uh, what about Arafune and Arashiyama? Do they make up the Ara Ara squad? Nah. Neither of them has enough thickness or the right expression, so... <laughs> Arashiyama a little. Arafune not at all. How, how are we getting Arashiyama mixed up with a, someone completely different? Uh, but uh, Speaking of character design, uh, Tsutsumi looks very similar to Composed Beefcake, just with his eyes closed. Uh, also, Murakami and Utagawa, quite similar looking designs. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I guess it's just the eyebrows, yeah. Uh, you, you can tell which is which by the goopy tears. <laughs> I found that this volume had strong characterization for Yuma. I especially like the moment when like, his curiosity was too intense to pass up this opportunity, especially since we also re-established that the rank was our mission to, to get to space, to get to the neighborhood. It's also an experience for Yuma for this basically dying boy. And going back to the strategy aspect a bit, I think it's nice that we learned that just choosing a map is no longer the only factor. There's also the weather, time of day, and so on which can be used to their advantage, as Nasu Squad does here, turning what was once a still a viable venue to cross into no-go zone. Because they point out that it doesn't just make it harder, it makes it nigh on impossible with how fast the river is going. You, you fall there without some good way to get out, and you're not coming back out, you're out. With regards to, like, because I know one one aspect of the weather was to make it more difficult for snipers, although I think this puts Taichi at a much more of a disadvantage than Chika, since Chika isn't looking to snipe people directly anyway. She just needs a vague idea of where they are. <laughs> yeah, she just needs to fire a at the same postcode and that'll do the job. I'm jumping between the matches a lot, because I've not organized my notes, but Sasamori being more collected and focused in combat is being something that's acknowledged is a really nice small little bit of character progression from the large-scale invasion where he was really freaking out over Sua being captured. So of course this time he's also not in a life-threatening situation where failure has serious consequences. Yeah, true. But I, I, it's more like I noticed that the, the little detail from the guy he was fighting, I've forgotten who it was. Oh yeah, Hakari. Is surprised by how level-headed he is and how focused he is. Uh, I uh, I really like how Sasamori has fucking fucking Sasamori has better better like character focus than most of the Tamakoma main supporting cast. I feel like the extended Trion struggle of Yuma, Arafune, Sasamori, and Sua towards the end uh, was was pretty it was pretty protracted. I don't think we've had multiple multiple characters leaking a fuck ton of Trion, but just holding it in for that long. Uh, it was a bit. It was a real endurance contest in that regard. I, I do. Ha I do have some standout panels. So, uh, so uh, both of them are comedic ones. So, firstly, during the commentary, when doing his final commentary, Midorikawa 
mimics him, like uh, pointing two fingers. Uh, I thought it was a funny one. Such a goofy child. Yes. <laughs> and and silly boy. And then uh, I don't know if it was uh, Lillian's choice or Ace's choice, but like when Ozma jokes that he has nothing more to say after Kadera said everything, uh, uh, making the sound effect dub was a choice. <laughs> I mean, one thing I will say for Karadera is, I believe in you! <laughs> when he's uh, being all shy around Usami. I, I think they could be nice together. Um, the, the translation choice of squad instead of unit, which is what a lot of the fan translations go for, uh, usually doesn't really, doesn't really, don't really have much of a comment on it, but like, here it's quite funny in hindsight, because every time I read Sewer Squad, I always kind of think of, are we some kind of suicide squad? <laughs> Yeah, um, art pals. I actually have one small favorite of my own, which is not that impressive, but just the context it puts. It's just after the bridge has been blown up, and and Kuma guy is facing Murakami. Just him slowly walking towards Kuma guy in the rain, drawing out his sword. Like they both know how this is going to end. Oh yeah. Just that one panel conveys so much threat with the angle. Murakami is so potentially overpowered. Uh, like, I don't... Hovin has forgot if there was any kind of downside or limit introduced to his sleep-learning ability, but I feel like if there isn't, just give this guy, like, a matter of months, and he's he's gonna be he's gonna be bored as absolute ace. Like, <laughs> I mean, he already is. He, he He's, like, the number four attacker, he's, so he already is. He, he's just stuck in a low-rank squad, but uh, whose captain he respects. Not to mention, I imagine that there's a difference between, like, internalizing knowledge and training your muscles to actually pull them consistently. Yeah, I find it interesting that Karuma unit gets used for Suzunari 1 way more than Mikumo unit gets used for Tamakoma 2. Like, it, you don't see Tamakoma 2 get referred to by the captain very much. It's kind of fair, because we already have uh, so many squad names to remember. <laughs> Just going by the captain is quite useful. Yeah, and Tamakoma we can pretty easily remember, because Tamakoma is such a central part, and the squad name, yeah, plus squad name is mentioned so often that it's hard to forget, so it's probably easier to refer to a secondary squad by the captain's name. Yeah, they're the main ones. So yeah, in addition to his superior acting skills, uh, Karuma's also better at thinking on, on his feet than I remember. Uh, I, I really didn't remember, uh, because he's like always so nervous, uh, I, I, I never really remember him acting th that much as a captain, but like just uh, controlling the, the situation on his side and uh, and, and instructing to Taichi. This is, this is a guy that, uh, that Ko and Taichi would want to follow. Also, uh, one little note that all the squads we've seen in the Rank Wars so far, Kuruma squad is the first one that doesn't have their ace as the captain. Hmm, that's true. Or at least who we would put up as the ace based on how they act. Like, I'm not sure if Suwa is exactly the ace. They all seem to be in pretty much the same, same level of strength, but I guess I'd put him a little bit above the other two. I feel like we've seen that in Arashiyama Squad, where Kitora is like the ace. Yeah, as I said, during the rank wars. Right. And then also we have the we obviously have the introduction of Nasu Squad, uh, who's it's a very striking, interesting party composition there. Um, in that like it's an all female team with the captain is bedridden. Uh, like it, it's like, huh? Okay, <laughs> this is this is very different. Yeah. No, that is also a nice note that 
despite being bedridden, Dryer Body does not care about that part at all. I was gonna say uh, in Archie Horror Comments Corner, it says that she likes exercising in her trying body, and I was like, oh, oh, no, my heart. Mm. Bit of world building we gotta note, because they know that Team Sniper, whose name I already forgot once again. Uh, Akane? Yeah, Akane, his family, is moving out because of the large-scale invasion, so it's not just people staying around when all the monsters attack Angel Grove again. Some people just figure, alright, fuck it, we're out, we don't want to deal with these constant monster attacks. Fuck this shit, I'm out. Yeah, you're definitely right, like, cogs are moving, um, the world is affected, like, things are moving around on their own. Yeah, like, I understand that not, not everyone probably wants to abandon their home and business and life, but some people would think that this is not worth sticking around for, we're moving. One thing that I, cause, because I didn't realize we were going to have a break... When I did this, I accidentally scheduled Kumagai's birthday tweets before this episode, just beforehand, thus breaking my habit of only focusing on read-through covered characters for the birthday tweets. Oh boy, whatever will my OCD do? Yeah, I- I'm going to I'm going to release it soon. My schedule is not going to change that much, right? Right? <laughs> We'll say something. <laughs> uh, in any case, you, you mentioned like the the badass moment of Murakami being a threat and uh, and Kuma guy knowing what's coming. I mean, I joked about it before, but I really liked uh, uh, Nasa saying, "I'll just have to defeat everyone on this side by myself." It, I'm not really usually impressed by characters having badass bows, but wow, this sickly girl meant business. Yeah, and having seen what she can do, we pretty much think that she probably could have done that. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, my last random observation is Taichi's pratfalls are always a good shout. Though I think there is a little point we might want to address before getting off this section, and that's the appearance of Husei in Tamakoma Branch. This is quite curious, that they're just hmm. seemingly not even chaining him or anything. Clara, no. Sorry, keep going. Yeah. But he's just there as a guest. <laughs> Did you hear any purring there? No. no. Okay, my cat was right next to the microphone and I had to pick her up and move her. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope it does come through. Hughes was active combat in the whole scenario, so did the other branch have anything to say about this? Not to mention his presence is going to raise a lot of questions for the future, which will be answered in later volumes. It's interesting how NASA Squad kind of assumes that uh, Kuga comes up with all the strategies, given that NASA is also an ace who also bears the ca- captain's burden. So, uh, of course, they would assume that. Chokeholds for Kikuchihara, and the uh, second time Jin sexually harassed someone in the manga. It's last time, too. Yeah, not a running gag anyone else will miss. I don't know if uh, anyone was like, yeah, fucking... Get those smacks on the asses. You know, it wouldn't be real funny if Kuma guy just turned around and cut his head off while they're in Triumph bodies. <laughs> oh, real bodies. I mean, I think those blades cannot cut living beings. At least the bullets couldn't kill a living person. At some point they did mention that they cannot kill, like, a person who isn't in a Triumph body. It'll hurt, but it won't deal any, like, lasting damage. Thank goodness. <laughs> that's true, yeah, it was established. I think that's all. Uh, you know... What isn't in a Triumph body? Hmm. Ashihara Comments Corner! <laughs> hey! <laughs> Alright, let's go. So, there's so one section that interests me is the taglines that would be put in the paper bands that go over graphic novels. Uh, because I don't, I don't remember if this goes for all 
tanker bond volumes, but a lot of tanker bonds are sold with this little paper slip around them. Uh, I actually own a special one for One Piece volume 82, or maybe, yeah, 82, that uh, is specialised as like a film gold tie-in, so it's a cool little gold band with, with all of these patterns on it, uh, but yeah, uh, I am absolutely kicking myself for not using some of these slogans in my love letter to underdogs video, because um, I feel like you could I could have put them into the section so easily, uh, I think, so, let's see, uh, I could have like had... A story whose meaning you'll soon realise for the introduction. I could have had sci-fi low and slow, explaining the technicalities of the battle system. Uh, then I could have only he doesn't realise he's a... Actually, no, no, not that one. I think it would be a world you can see from a point of weakness for the section discussing Osamu and Chika's character arcs. I'm sorry, but, but like, while sci-fi low and slow is a perfectly good tagline, some of those who like just received honourable mentions were great, whereas so, some of the other ones were just fucking garbage. Like, a, a story whose meaning you'll soon realise. Come on, y y you could say that for every series. Yeah, that just sounds, to me that just kind of pretentious. It's, it, that's like the fortune cookie of suggestions. Yeah, like... <laughs> For friends become comrades. Oh, oh, oh yes. Uh, maybe a friendship effort victory. Fuck off. Though I do still like my favorite is still only he doesn't realize he's a hero. It, it hasn't stopped raining is very good uh, um, about Miwa. A lot of suggestions for Miwa. Yeah. Just that I think it hasn't stopped raining is just a bit too derivative of the it's raining. We should get out of here by Roy Mustang. Or at least for me, it's like, I can't stop thinking of that whenever I hear it, so it's kind of distracting. Might just be a me problem. Yeah, I feel like another one I could hypothetically add is there are as many reasons to fight as there are people from the section on varying factions, but that section of the video was a bit too short to really justify getting its own heading. Yeah, though that is still a really good one. Valentine's rankings. Uh, so one comment that might puzzle a lot of readers is, again, even though she's a girl for Chika's placement... Uh, but that is because Japan has very different traditions regarding Valentine's Day. I believe Valentine's Day is a day when girls give chocolates to boys, and then White Day is when boys give chocolates back to girls, I think. Yeah, I believe you are right. Yeah. At least if the manga I read is anything to go by. Oh yes, the two genders, Valentine and White. Izumi is an interesting character for like the first place. Yeah, he, he's a pretty character, but 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 he's like so ordinary looking, um, as opposed to like m most other characters. Yeah, I, I Tachikawa or Jin or even I guess um, Miwa seem like more obvious options for like the big heartthrob male characters. But yeah. I mean, Jin did just in this issue sexually harass a co-worker, so might have lost him some points. Yeah. Yeah. I love those taglines. His normal clothes are sometimes lame. Th then for Kazama and for Yuma, of course, drawing attention to the height. Sexual harassment elite, second time in nine volumes. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, that's why he should really not have gotten those votes. <laughs> and there's the Satori. Don't forget Satori. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could with his most dumb, dumb fighting style of double snipers. If we had gone on with World Triggered, I would have wanted to have the gag where it's like, we got our own sniper too, just keep firing and never hit any- just like, fire a few dozen shots in rapid succession and not hit anything until on the very last one as he does in the episode. It hits Kitora and Tokiei <laughs> and knocks them out of the combat. 
<laughs> that would have been great. Also, side note, I really wish we'd gone for a different title for World Trigger Bridge, but that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I love Osama's t- tagline because he tied with Tachikawa, so same level as A rank number one, Osama Mikomo. I feel like th- th- this could be uh, this could be something taken out of context, just like uh, oh yeah, he dined with Kazama. <laughs> okay, I mean, I-, I guess my only other comments are with the character bios. Daichi Tsutsumi dies a lot. <laughs> I love that as a running gag. Just Kako poisoning Daichi. <laughs> One of the standout moments from the bonus character pages is uh, Kako killing people with weird rice. Uh, Tsutsumi died twice. This can't have been very nice. You should have added spice. I bet Tajikawa's got lice. Yeah, apparently she has some very weird rice recipes. Shokugeki no Kako? I do love that both Nasu and Tsutsumi are fucking dying. Uh, fuck it, maybe I'm gonna ship them. Then there's, like, Hokari's and Hisato's cheeky text flirting. I, I do wonder, though, why are they using, like, mid-2000s em- emoticons? Like, get with the times. I mean, do they? maybe they still use those kinds of emoticons in Japan. Uh, they, they do like using the very, um, the very kind of advanced mm. one using, uh, I don't know, non-emojis. I think it's a I do really like Kagami having this weird detail that she like sends members of her team clay sculptures when they, whether they win or lose. Although it is unfortunate that, that that particular bio just kind of randomly refers to her by her cup size. Yeah, it hasn't like Ashihara done done the same for like all the operators. Yeah, it's it's a shame. He's usually yeah. I've I've gone into this before. Like he's usually generally pretty good about this, uh, and then. In these bios, he he does keeps doing this for some reason. Also, an interesting note is that bios say that Kuroe is actually younger than even Chika, and the youngest Eric agent there is. Yeah, she she's also like uh, Midori Kawaspear, and uh, was she a classmate or schoolmate? I guess schoolmate if she's younger. Well, it says she went to school elementary school in the mountains with Midori Kawa, so. Schoolmate or classmate, it's not specified. Though, I would assume that in the mountains there would be smaller classes, so maybe bigger chance classmate? It's not specific, so... So many Arafune squad interactions were cut as well. I I, I mean, why didn't the anime uh, expand on those? Because those sound amazing, instead of, like, stretching everything out. Hashtag release the Arafune cut. <laughs> Please don't. Well, it's, it's because the anime staff was being paid garbage, so, yeah. Yeah, I also, I I don't have a source for this, but I have reason to believe that it was a lot of, like, kind of, they just kind of rushed a lot of newbies into it and didn't give them a very good schedule. Well, with Akane, since she likes hats specifically, I do wonder if she is the one collecting all the city sniper hats. At the beginning, uh, just after the cover page, I I debated for a long time which character I was going to put on the cover, Sua Arafune or Murakami or Nasu. I decided on Sua, who had been working hard since the invasion. It's not because uh, it it would make my author portrait super easy. Uh, bless you. Bless you, Ashihara. Okay, uh, shall we move into Spoiler Corner? Let's. Yeah, let's. So, Grail, uh, what, are, what is your favourite moment in Wild Trigger? If you had, if you just put a gun to my head right now and said, choose one or die, then I would say it's one that comes in the very next volume, actually. And it kind of bummed me out that this volume ended just before that one. Which is just after Kumagai has been beaten by Murakami. And Tachikawa comments on like, 
yeah, that was the obvious outcome, even if Kuma Guy wanted it more. Like he says, don't get me wrong, I like passionate battles, but if you make the outcome of the p battle all about passion, you might as well be saying that the loser just didn't want it enough. Because that's both going against the the flow with the shonen that where usually the good guys who just wanted more win. And also just saying like, that's like saying that bad guys just didn't want to win enough. You can't just put someone's feelings at the forefront like that and inval without invalidating the other side. Mm. I mean, I will say that like a lot, a lot of other shonen, they often have the character comes to an emotional catharsis is the framing device for how they win the fight. Um, so yeah, this definitely does run counter to that. Um. Yeah, so that would be the, my immediate choice if you just kind of like force me to choose one. Because there are a lot of good points. That's just the first one that always comes to mind. I mean, go, yeah, go through some others you like, by all means. Well, there is also the recent note, the first time Chica shoots someone. Because that is just both the art and the hmm. expert preparation. Like, alright, Chica shoots right through the window, and there's both a focus shield and a roof tile, thinking, okay, it's gonna be a black blood, so block with this. No. Like, here we saw that a focus shield can block a shot, like Sua did. But when it's Chica, no, you cannot. <laughs> there is no defending against the Tamakoma's tryout cannon. <laughs> I d uh, yeah, I, I do. Um, I, I did love that moment. And yes, speaking of which, um, here we do have characters noticing that uh, Chica isn't really earning points. She, she's just destroying the battlefield, and that's it. So it's it's only after that that uh, that we kind of we kind of see that uh, Chica can't shoot people. But it's really interesting seeing that uh, kind of slowly play out over time. One minor spoilery thing. Uh, it's my only spoiler corner comment for this this particular volume is that I think it's a nice kind of minor way the series helps upping the ante is having Azuma feature here as a commentator and very much a veteran figure uh, and then coming up he's going to be their opponent in their later four-way match it's a, it's a it's definitely a good way of making the stakes feel aptly raised. He's definitely had several appearances all throughout the story, like we uh, we had him during the training session of the snipers with uh, with Satori as well. Then we had him like uh, kind of leading the B ranks in the battle against Rambanine. Clara, no! In the battle against Clara, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you mentioned that um, it, it does pay attention to the fact that, that this is a match when uh, we see that strategizing uh, just around the ace is not going to cut it. After a while, even after this match, um, Osama uh, kind of still strategizes around Yuma, so, so um, it's a it's a slow process. Osama is one of my favorite characters for those reasons that he seems to be like the single most level-headed guy in the entire border squads. And also probably the best tactician there is. I do really like it that, that he just have this squad of of like two youngsters who are like potential aces in the making and lets them lets them do their own thing. Yeah, like he takes a back seat and only gets in once he when he thinks it's necessary. Because he thinks those two don't grow if he just gives them the answers constantly. Him interacting with Ninamiya, that's gonna be great. Yeah, that's gonna be fun. Actually I read that the next chapter is gonna come out thirtieth of this month. Yeah, so next Friday. Next week's Friday. Yes, he had to he had to take he had to take another month off 
in order to, yeah, for health reasons. Right, okay. I, I thought it was going to be a longer hiatus, but uh, some scheduled chapters were still going to come out. Yeah, that's why we did have a chapter last month. Yeah, no, I remember when it was announced, there was still the intent to come back in the next volume, though obviously could still be that there is a, there is a we need to put it off for another chapter. We'll see. Yeah. Oh, wait. Actually, we did get one last month, but we got at the very beginning of last month, and now we get one at the very end of this month, so... Poor race with this schedule. Yeah. <laughs> F's in chat for Ace. Okay, shall we go into the Q&A section? No, I still have one more thing. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's okay, it's okay. Shall we go into the Q&A segment? Shit! <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um one interesting thing in like the first character pages, like introducing all the characters um in, in the Tamakoma section. Uh, and Usami is list still listed as the operator for Tamakoma 1, not Tamakoma 2. So, it's interesting like given that she's only a temporary replacement for Yuri Rindo, who was introduced later. I think that's all from me. So, let's get to the Q&A. <laughs> So, I guess, shall we get into the designated guest interview section? Alright, so take, a, take it away, guys. So, uh, as an opening question, how did you get into World Trigger? I imagine it was pretty much exactly the same as you guys, in that I couldn't read it at first because that was the time before Manga Plus when there was an easy and legal option for Westerners, so I just didn't really care much about it. Until one of your earlier guests, Chris Larios of Weekly Manga Recap, really started getting into it, so eventually I too thought like, oh what the hell, I'll go check it out. And by the later stages, it really was getting my attention with the more strategic fights. I think what really clenched it for me was the invasion arc. That made me a fan. Okay, um, and which would be your favorite character in World Trigger? Osamu. That's just not even a question. I love the underdog type and the guy that can win with the limited resources they have just using their mind. Even though Osamu usually doesn't, but hey, I like slow burns. That's why Yukimitsu is probably one of my favorites in High Shield 21, which I've been rereading lately. James the Welder from from, uh, from the MHA pod uh, recently beat you to the uh, to creating the I Shield Twenty One podcast, didn't he? It's all right. I'll just go and make a Homestuck podcast instead with Blackjack and Hookers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how you have those in a pod. Well, I mean, I guess you could have Hookers, but how do you have Blackjack on a podcast? Oh, don't underestimate me. So, if you had to choose a best and worst sparring partner in the series, what would it be? I'm gonna have to ask like. For myself, or...? For yourself. Imagine you are a hypothetical border agent. Uh, who would be the best character to have as a sparring partner, who would be your least favorite to have? Well, I'm assuming that in scenario I would be a sniper, in which case best would probably be... Uh, shit, why can't I remember? Yeah, Azuma, because he's the teacher type. He would be able to point out everything I did wrong there. I would be able to grow a lot by just going up against him in a, f in a sniper match. Good choice. And worst, probably that one Pompadour guy whose name I currently forget. Toma. Toma, yes. Mostly because he seems pretty arrogant and it would just crush my spirit that he probably didn't even try. He was just trying to style on me rather than making the proper fight. And he would probably still crush me. That would be pretty spirit-breaking. <laughs> and my last question for now. Um... 
if you had to have a customized trigger activation catchphrase, what would it be? If I had to just choose one off the top of my head, because you didn't prep these questions to me at all, I would just do a beautiful Joe reference and make it Henshin a Go-Go, baby! <laughs> I'm just going to say, I, I, I didn't expect this interview at all, either. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I last minute was like, oh shit, I should probably do an interview. Uh, uh, here's some questions. <laughs> I just typed them out. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't expect it, uh, since like uh, Grail is uh, Grail is such a frequent guess uh, uh, on ourselves that then <laughs> I kind of, I kind of assumed yeah uh, uh, yeah his experience is probably the same as ours. So the first question is from uh, it's from Arcus Rhapsody, uh, who asks if there was something called a World Trigger Pizza, what do you think would be on it? Should we give some examples of toppings one each or? I mean, I, I I listed a bunch. Mine with mine features duck for duck faces, rabbit for the rabbits, uh, beef chunks for the beef beef mince for the beefcake, and uh, broccoli to be the tree on broccoli for tree on. That's interesting. I thought that we should maybe add uh, tofu or um or feta cheese in it and cut it up into like sewer cubes. Uh, sorry, trying cubes. I. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna say tree on cubes, but uh, then my mind immediately went to sewer. <laughs> And I'll just say that I got no idea. I always get the full beef pizza, so that's not going to be very helpful here. My cat is digging into my thigh! Stop it, Clara! <laughs> Home its invasion arc. Maybe Clara was the evil kitty from Eftocrator uh, all along. Uh, I, I do like, uh, also in the uh, uh, WMR server, uh, Gelly Elfson had a nice idea, having e eggplant in it because of a coma. Uh, also, uh, we we got a, an anonymous question. So this is actually from my curious cat. We, we didn't really get a lot of questions this time. I, I think maybe some people assume that, that we are actually doing the uh, Eden Zero read-through instead of this again. Oh my god. Uh, is my channel still okay? I don't know. Uh, let's find out. Pitch a film starring the greatest actors of our time. Karuma World Trigger. <laughs> Karuma World Trigger and Nanoka Satsuki. Uh, would any of you want to explain what who Nanoka Satsuki is and from what series? So, Minoka Satsuki is the protagonist of a short-lived romantic comedy jump series called Cross Account, a series which myself, well, all of us who were able to read it uh, ended up really, really hating. Uh, and it's essentially about these two, this act, these, this like actress celebrity model, and this weird kind of insolent guy being secret, like, on an online pseudonym friends who don't know who they actually are, and romance ensues. Uh, and we remember, we all really, really hated the main character, we hated the fanficy, self-indulgent framing of it, we hated the kind of general chuddishness. Wednesdaydale has done a whole video essay on why the series is bad, and we also have a compilation episode of Duckface, uh, Duck, uh, not Duckface, of, um... Stammerstream, which is the podcast where we recap jump stuff of our reactions to the first three chapters. Yeah, I do remember Nova being particularly angry about the first chapter. As I recall, he said something like, the guy uses the fire extinguisher as if he beats all the bullies with his giant cock. Or something along those lines. I guess to get to the question, my pitch for this would be like, a very meta work. Uh, so Nanoka stars as an actor coming out from soap, soap operas. She used, she's used to doing... She is playing an actress in the film. She is used to being very swooning and melodramatic and like forcing the tears through. She is starring in a very avant-garde theatre production. Uh, she is not used to this. 
and she stumbles into a guy who seems to have kind of wandered into the building by accident. Uh, this would be Karuma. And this guy isn't an actor, but everyone assumes he is an actor. They all think like, oh, oh, he's, he's, got, he's got such a naturalistic approach. And she has this whole arc where she has to learn from his naturalistic approach. And he's just there like, honestly, I'm, I'm not supposed to be here. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh my god, that's exactly what someone would say. <laughs> and it's like they, she's having her own movie learning from him and how he was able to help her refine her actress self. Uh, and he's just like completely clueless, uh, and that—that's what—that's what the movie would be. Uh, I love how you basically have him be Mister Peanut Butter. <laughs> yes, having been one of the people fortunate enough to not read Cross Account, I don't think I can answer this properly. All right, fair enough. I would say that Nanoka is definitely an actress who can do the dramatic stuff. She can play a tragic heroine very well. She has definitely a lot of experience in that, in this kind of pathos. Karuma's general nervousness—he would definitely do great in a in a redemption arc uh, as a character him playing some sort of a bully nanoka's character's early childhood who then has to turn over a new leaf uh, i think that he uh, they should play a retelling of a silent voice but every time oh they say God. death it's it's replaced with a normie oh oh dear i feel i'm missing some context here so a silent voice is a film of, uh, featuring no, I mean the normie oh, stuff. Right. Um So the yeah, the main character of Cross Account is um he's kind of an incelish nerd and he's always talking about how, how much he, he how much yeah, how much he hates uh normies and they're all judging him Anyway, uh, I think that, that wraps up our, our question corner. Shall we go to the wrap up? Yeah, let's wrap up. Let's wrap up. So, this is going to do it for the 11th episode of Duckface Diaries. You can listen to us on so many podcast hosting sites, anchor.fm slash Cheddar, youtube.com slash seawood slash Cheddar, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Breaker, Overcast, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Podbay, Play FM, Listen Notes, Castro, Google Podcasts. But you can find all the links on patreon.com slash Cheddar in the pinned post. So you can find it through there. You don't have to go through Anchor or YouTube um, if you don't want to visit those. Um, so uh, this is all fine. Now all the links are at patreon.com slash Cheddar, which is uh, where you can also support me. So great. And remember that much like the neighborhood, the YouTube algorithm is a dark abyss of sorrows and woes from which channels like these never resurface. And what helps us navigate it is liking, subscribing, and sharing the podcast with a friend. On the YouTube channel and the same RSS feed, you get access to not only Duckface Diaries, but Manga Mosaic, a collection of podcasts and video essays on other manga titles, short and long alike. Uh, recently, uh, me and Lom Ramayasha from the Manga Mavericks podcast uh, put out a small episode about the Emperor and I, which is a which is like a short slice of life manga about a um, penguin and his girl. Uh, that came out wrong uh, about a girl and her penguin. <laughs> you can read on the Shonen Jump app, so uh, check that out and check out Manga Mavericks, which is a, a great podcast talking about um, the manga industry as well. Follow our sister show. Yes, uh, check out Hoven's Hideaway, uh, youtube.com slash Hoven with an H uh, is the new link for it, and also anchor.fm slash Hoven's Hideaway, uh, and all, it's it's available on various podcasting apps. We, rec- uh, we recently put up an episode where I was joined by Jacob Parker Dalton, who was in our Myself and Wednesday Dale's Chainsaw Man podcast, uh, and me and him discussed the finale to Attack on Titans manga, and what our own various hot takes were on how satisfying we found it as a conclusion. 
Uh, and yeah, please give that a look. I'm very happy with how it turned out. It was a fun chat. It was very nice. It, it did very much inspire me to write more and expand my script. I'm going to make a video essay about Attack on Titan soon, uh, uh, about the finale. It's going to be probably within a month or two. Like, I can't guarantee now, but because my schedule has changed so much. Grail, uh, would you like to plug something? Well, not much to plug. I mean, there's my Twitter, at Nuclear Android, and my YouTube channel, where I always tell myself I'm one day going to post a video about something, make a script or half a script, and then give up on the whole process. But hey, Aww. given maybe, um, I don't know, two or three more decades, I might get something up. Uh, and also, if you'd like to help me upload these on a regular basis, consider supporting me on patreon.com slash Cheddar. In return for your support, you get access to rewards such as add $1 tier, a shout out on your name in the credits, at the $3 tier. You may request a World Trigger Dockface avatar. At the $6 tier, you may request a short series to be covered on the, the Manga Mosaic podcast. At the $12 tier, you get access to, to some behind-the-scenes stuff, such as, uh, for example, scripts of future episodes. I still got to make that master post. And at the $25 tier can request a series to be covered on long-form video essay. High-level contributors get access to manga threads for a series from the Shonen Up Vault I'm reading for the very first time, including my first impressions on the chapters and Shonen Up panels. Help me reach goals such as uh, reviving World Trigger Bridge or more manga video essays. Just generally <laughs> releasing anything. I, I mean, I mean, I I, I do have a job now. <laughs> I don't know how much I will be able to promise in general, let alone rewards. I have dug my own grave. Send us emails, questions, comments, suggestions at wednesdaydale 12 at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at DuckFaceDiaries or individual Twitters at WednesdayCheddar, at Hoban with an H, at Nuclear Android. A sincere thank you to Milo Jack Stillitz, who composed our new ending theme and orchestral rendition of Girigiri, the first opening sequence for World Trigger. It's not our new ending theme, it's, it's, it's been our ending theme since like episode 4, so you can find his work at soundcloud.com slash milojackstillitz. What are we covering next time? Next time we're covering volume 12, which covers chapters 98 to 106, which in the anime is an interesting case. It's episodes 45 to 65, which sounds like a lot, but you have to bear in mind that episodes 48 to 63 are the anime's lone filler arc. Oh shit! Which we are not going to be covering for this read-through series, but could well end up being something that we could do for, say, a Patreon exclusive. So do let us know if you'd be interested in us covering that. It's probably going to be covered uh, as a bonus thing. I, I would say 76.3%. Uh, so, once again, thank you very much, Grail, for coming on. It was a really pleasure to record with you again. My pleasure. So, this was the 11th episode of Duckface Diaries, and as always, it's time to bugger, bugger off! off.